Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about thirty years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hezli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maat, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semine, the son of Yozek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maleah, the son of Mena, the son of Matata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Haber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arpaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Kainan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Welcome to Regeneration. My name is Albert. We are in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. We're going to go through uh, chapter 4, verse 13, and we're going to break down each name by name. No, we're not going to do that. (laughs) 
We, we have this labeled part one because uh, we're actually going to move um, just kind of generally in chapter four, and then next week we'll go into that in a little bit more detail. But I just wanted to cover that because it's really important because sometimes we kind of break it off on chapter three and then we go to chapter four as a separate idea. But it's actually all together, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. So I, I, I wanted to make sure that that was together so we can kind of have that frame of thought moving forward. Now, some of you may be sports fans, and I think most of you are not, uh, because like when we have things on Monday night, a Monday night football thing is not a big deal to us, and, and praise God for that. We, we just, we're just, it's not a big thing, right? It, it's cool. We can, we can let go of that. For those of you that are, we, we can talk about it afterwards. I didn't mean to offend you at all. Um, but I'm a big Lakers fan, and I think I just offended some of you. But how many of us are from L.A. anyway? Yep, yep, okay, there we are. Um, see, I, I grew up in the Showtime era. I'm, I'm aging myself. I know I don't look it, it's just the, you know, Asian complexion thing. So, but I grew up in the 80s, you know, Magic Johnson, James Worthy, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I can name the whole lineup, all 12, but I won't do that. I'll spare you. Some of you weren't even born yet. That, that's, wow. But I remember growing up and these family gatherings and uh, just watching watching games. I, I grew up watching games with my family, all the family gatherings. My sister, who's three years younger than me, but she's a lot more successful financially, she used to buy me tickets, playoff tickets for my birthday every year. Whenever they made the playoffs in the 90s, they just stunk, so it didn't happen too often then. But before that, she used to buy me these tickets uh, every, every birthday, and um, I used to get accompanied uh, seats also with the company I worked at. I, we used to have these seats. They were, they, were the th- they were like the third row from the floor. They were the most awesome thing, and I went into ministry. And so, um, and it was just, it was, it was great. I, I, I loved it, right? And, and since I moved to the Bay Area, they've won um, five out of the last ten championships, and uh, if they keep winning like this, I will stay in the Bay Area. I will not move back to Southern California. And the last one they won was this past season, right? And it, and it, it was won in dramatic fashion. They were down 3-2 to two in a best-of-seven series. And, and they came back to win. Um, they, they won game six. And then the final game, they were down by 13 points in the final game seven, right? But we won. We won. And that's, that's what we, right? We as fans, that's what we say. We, we won, right? We won, we won. And, um, and I have a friend that gets so irritated when I say, oh yeah, we won. Like, you won? I didn't see you make that shot. Like, right? You didn't win. You, you didn't win. And I, he was so mad because he was like the 76ers fan, so he got really upset. And um, I, didn't see you, I didn't see you make the shot. You didn't do anything. It's not your team. I, was like, I, know, I know I didn't make that shot. I'm like three feet too short to be in the NBA, so I, I know, I know, so I, I know I didn't do it, right? I, but I did, I, I have bought tickets, I have bought Laker gear, I, I, I supported the franchise in various ways, that was my money on the court, I, I've given that franchise money, so I know I wasn't on the court, but someone in the Laker family did it, and I got to celebrate that victory as part of that family, I paid into it, I'm part of it. Now, I know that isn't a perfect analogy, but that's kind of how biblical faith works, right? It works, in, it works in like this in biblical faith. Everything hangs on, some, on something that someone else did for us as a representative in that kind of a capacity. 
That's how our faith works. That's how, that's how we, we, we get this transfer, right? We, we're familiar with this idea when it comes to Jesus and his death on the cross. Right? He was a representative. I did not die on that cross, but it's representative for me. So Jesus is our representative. He is our substitute on the death, on, on that cross, at his death. And he paid the penalty of our sins, and we deserve that death. And he, desi- he, he died that death that we deserve to die. Now, something that we often overlook is that Jesus is our substitute, that Jesus is our representative in his life by living the life that we failed to live. He lived a sinless life. He was was perfectly obedient to the law of God, his father's law. And when we think of what the Bible considers an acceptable sacrifice, the sacrifices have to be without blemish. They have to be perfect. And if Jesus was to be a representative, our substitute who paid for our sins on the cross in his death, he has to be a sacrifice without blemish. Perfect. He had to live a perfect life. He had to live a perfect life of obedience to the the law of God in order to be an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. And our salvation hangs on Jesus' perfect obedience to the law of God. And this is what Luke is pointing out in this section of his gospel account. Yes, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. But the huge point Luke is making deals with Jesus' life. Right? That Jesus stands in our place to win our victory for us by his life of obedience. And that's the key point of this section of Scripture. Now before we get too far into this key point, I'd like to look at something that some of us might overlook. I think it's important. I'd like us to take a look at the pleasure God takes in His Son. Verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son, with You I am well pleased. When Luke records this baptism account, he doesn't put the focus on the baptism itself. He puts it on what happened. Right? When Jesus was baptized, two things were important for Luke to point out. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, equipping him for ministry by the power of God. And the second thing was the voice from heaven, the Father's voice saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Son of God, that the Son of God that, that God loved and delighted in His Son. And so do you sense the pleasure God has in His Son? Just pause there for a moment and, and, and realize that, because it's an important thing to realize and to recognize. Don't overlook this. That He brought amazing delight to His dad. And to get a better understanding of what God said here, let's take a closer look at, at what Jesus' baptism meant. Last week we took a look at John's baptisms, all the baptisms he was doing, that that they were a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what it was, right? Now, Now, doesn't this look odd? Because isn't baptism what sinners need? And when someone went to John to be baptized, they were they were coming to proclaim that they they, they have been going the wrong way. And that they need to turn around. That's repentance, right? To turn around, to make an about face. That's repentance. We talked about that last week. And even if they are a child of Abraham, 
which they were claiming to be, and they were. They were the covenant people. Repentance still needed to happen. A turning needed to happen. A baptism was something for sinners who needed to repent. And we know from Luke chapter 1, verse 35, that Jesus didn't need this. He didn't need this repentance because He was born holy. Jesus didn't need to repent. He wasn't a sinner. So what's going on here? Why is he getting baptized? Why, why was he baptized if he wasn't a sinner and he didn't need to repent? Why did he do something that sinners go through? So what does all this action mean? What, what does all this stuff mean? See, Jesus is willingly identifying himself with sinners. Right? He's, he's standing in a sinner's place. In that baptism, he's standing in a sinner's place. Baptism is for sinners. Jesus was without sin, but He submitted to baptism. He stepped into that water because He wanted to be willing to stand in a sinner's place. Now, weekday mornings, and also after school, at some elementary schools around Oakland, there's a crossing guard. And this is the crossing guard in front of our school, right by my house. He or she is there to help the kids across the street. Right? Right? There he is. <laughs> and I trained him myself. Um, so they could get to school more safely, right? That's, that's what a crossing guard. Most crossing guards I've seen, they're very good at their jobs. I don't know if you've noticed this. I think they all have this type of OCD type of thing. They're very, very militant about when kids cross and when they keep them. I don't know if they train them or like that. I, anyway, they're really on top of what they do. I've noticed this. On all of them. And if the crossing guard has a couple students waiting, usually the guard notice when they notice like a larger group coming, they're going to hold up the entire group and wait for that mass so they can all cross together, right? If it's just one kid and there's a group coming, they usually don't just let the kid cross and come back and do. They're just being efficient. Now, if one of the elementary school teachers comes by um, along after school and comes to the crosswalk and, 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 and do they have to stand there? For that crossing guard? Are they, are they under the same restrictions as the young children? They're not, right? If the teacher wants to cross, if, they, if he or she wants to get to her car, his or her car across the street, he or she can go when it's safe without waiting for the crossing guard. It's, it's a crosswalk. They, they can go. Now, the teacher probably won't get reprimanded by that crossing guard like a young student would, right? They'd be like, don't go. Wait, right? But the teacher, they, they probably wouldn't do that. Can go ahead. They don't have to wait for that crossing guard. They can go ahead, even though there's just a couple of children waiting right there while this larger group of children is, is coming. Why can the teacher decide to do that? Right? The, the, the teacher can make some choices. The teacher doesn't have to wait. The teacher can go. The teacher can willingly put him or herself under the same rules as the children. He or she can decide that. So the teacher can wait there with the couple of kids while this larger group of kids is coming over so they can all cross at the same time. right? So, so the teacher doesn't have to, but he or she can decide to. She, he or she can choose to. And the teacher can voluntarily place him or herself under those restrictions. And so that's kind of what Jesus is doing in His baptism. He didn't have to. But he was showing his willingness to stand in a sinner's place to associate with that group going across. It was also shown in his death on the cross, right? 
He took our place on the cross. He didn't have to. He decided to. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus calls his death his baptism. And so we see this foreshadow of the cross in his baptism. Jesus, the Son of God, identified himself with sinners, willingly stood in a sinner's place in that water. And this helps explain the delight God has in his Son. Right? You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. God is so happy with Jesus. So delighted. He's so thrilled with His Son who is willing to stand in the place of sinners, you and me. How does God delight in His Son, Jesus, have any bearing on us? What does that have to do with us? Well, if we just change the statement a little to one we can make because we can't say Jesus is our son, right? To something that is, is, is true, is not heresy. I know, oh, you're changing the Bible, heretic. No, it's still true. It's just, we're, hear me out. You are God's beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. If we, if we can honestly say that, if we can honestly acknowledge those things, that, that Jesus is God's Son and we are well pleased with Him, you've entered the kingdom of God. Right? It's a statement that agrees with the Father. Right? If you can acknowledge that God, Jesus is God's Son and you are pleased with Him, you're delighted in Him, and because of that, you are going to submit to Him, you are going to follow Him, you are going to be obedient to Him. So you think about this. Have you ever received a certain delight? a certain pleasure when, when someone you love is praised. It's not praised to you. It's someone you love that is praised. And yet you feel so happy. You feel so delighted. You are not receiving that praise directly, but you sense pleasure in that, don't you? You do. right? When my children are praised, I, I'm so happy. I love it. And when they aren't, I'm mad. I, I'm re- and if you, you're critical of them, or if you shout at them, all bets are off. <laughs> right? It's just, it just is. Ask my wife. I, I, I have to repent after. I repent before too. I know I'm going to fl- flip my lid. I know it. So, one of your children is praised, right? And for, for how well they cared for someone who was, who was marginal, marginalized in their class. And they reached down, they cared for him. And, and you know what? I, I can see it in parents' eyes that, that their demeanor changes, that, that their, their countenance changes, their, their color in their face changes. Everything changes. That delight that, that they've received for their children, it totally changes them. Or your spouse, when your spouse is praised, right? They're praised for some skill that they have or how helpful they are in, in some difficult situation. And the pleasure that, that someone receives to hear when their spouse is being praised. And in praising someone who matters dearly to you, who you just delight in, who you just love with all your heart, you receive pleasure in that praise for that person even though it's not directed towards you. So you see how we can be a part of this? That, that with our praise to Jesus, how it delights God the Father, 
how delightful that is, how, how, how that just brings a smile to his face. You are God's beloved son. With you, I am pleased also. I'm pleased with you. So are we pleased with Jesus? Are we delighted in Jesus who stands in the place of sinners? Now in chapter 3, verse 23 through chapter 4, verse 2, we see the battle Jesus enters with the enemy. And so don't worry, we will not read all that text again. Um, I will not do as good of a job as Sergio. I'll butcher all those names. But we're just going to do some observations here. All right, so let's first start out by pointing out the order, the order of this. There's a baptism, then there's this genealogy, right, verses 23 through 38, and then comes the temptation. So do you remember how Matthew and Mark break this down, how they record this part of the gospel? In Matthew chapters 3 and 4, Matthew accounts go from Jesus' baptism, and they go right into the temptation, right, right into the temptation in the wilderness, Mark does the same thing. Mark chapter 1. It's Jesus' baptism. He goes right into the temptation. What does Luke do? He goes into the baptism. He goes into the temptation, but it's following the baptism, right? So it's it's kind of the same, but what's different? Sandwiched in between those two things is this, this thing that happens. In between those two significant events of Baptism, temptation, there's this thing in the middle that, that's there. What's going on here? What's going on with this family tree business that's sandwiched right in there? And this order is different from Matthew's Gospel, where in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew starts his Gospel account with Jesus' genealogy. He starts right off with it. And you know, some of you guys skip that whole section, right? I'm not there yet. Um... We skip this whole section in Matthew. I just see all the eyes like this. Like a cat when you follow the bosses. <laughs> so, Matthew chapter 1, we, we start out reading this and we're just like, oh, names. Um, okay, verse 18, here's where I start. You guys skip all those names, right, usually? And, and it's, it's just like we do here in, in Luke. Like, oh, bunch of names. Where do I so? Okay, chapter 4, there we go. Lots of names. We're just going to start here. But there are differences between Matthew's family tree and Luke's family tree. And and one of those differences is that Matthew starts with Abraham and he works his way down to Jesus. Matthew starts with Abraham because he wants Israelites to see that Jesus is a true descendant of Abraham. And Matthew purposely takes the family tree through David because he wants them to see, the, the, the Jewish folks, the Israelites reading, reading Matthew's account, that Jesus is an heir to David's throne. So he's purposely going through that way. It goes all the way down to Jesus. Luke doesn't do that. I mean, he does. He carries through those people. But he does it a little differently. Luke starts with Jesus, and he goes the other way. And you notice that it just keeps going and going and going. It's much longer than Matthew's. And Luke doesn't stop at David in verse 31 because he doesn't want it to stop at Jesus being an heir to David's throne. And Luke doesn't stop at Abraham, verse 34, because it's not just about Jesus being a descendant of Abraham. He goes all the way to Adam. Verse 38. The first dude. He goes to the first dude all the way over there. And right, he goes the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. The Son of God. God. Now, what is Luke trying to get across to us? Why is this family tree sandwiched right in between the baptism and the temptation? 
Well, Luke isn't just saying that Jesus is representative of the Messianic king, which he is. He's, he's not just saying that Jesus is a true Israelite, which he is. Luke is also saying that Jesus is representative of humanity. The first guy created, the first man, right? The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. The son of Adam, all the way to the beginning of the creation of man. Now I know that right after verse 38, there's this new chapter, chapter, 30, chapter 4. But like I asked you guys before, don't break it up. Keep it together, because it's one continuous thought. From that genealogy to this temptation, which is why we purposely mashed them together here this morning. And like I said before, we'll go into more depth of chapter 4 next week. But it's important to keep these two chapters together. Right? So Luke goes from the son of Adam, the son of God, in chapter 3, verse 38, right into chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. What is Luke trying to tell us? One continuous thought. What is Luke trying to tell us? Luke is telling us that Jesus is the second Adam. Right? The second Adam. That, that he was tempted just like the first Adam was. That whole genealogy up to here. But instead of falling, Jesus was victorious in the temptation. What is Luke trying to say? Well, there was this first Adam, right? This first Adam who failed in temptation. But there's this new Adam, a second Adam, Jesus, who faithfully obeyed in in his temptation and he conquered the evil one. It seems that Luke is essentially telling us to compare Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 to Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13. Cue slide. For us to contrast, to look to see what we have between those two texts. Right In Genesis chapter 3, we have the first Adam who was tempted. Luke chapter 4, we have the second Adam who was tempted. In Genesis chapter 3, we have this beautiful, lush garden. You know, it had all this stuff. Luke, Luke chapter 4, a desolate wilderness. You don't hear of these things, right? Well, it seems to be a much harsher environment. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the first Adam who seems to be given everything. There's this abundance of stuff. He gets to even name animals. It's so awesome. He's like, he has all these physical gifts of of things given to him and these provisions. Luke chapter 4, we have the second Adam. Nothing. Physically destitute, physically weak, physically hungry. No, No physical advantages there. Genesis chapter 3, the first Adam's hit with one temptation. Knocked out. Just uppercut. Done. Luke chapter 4, second Adam's tempted with multiple temptations. It wasn't just three. Read the text a little closer, right? He withstands everyone. Verse 13, chapter 4, and when the devil had ended every temptation. Every. It wasn't just three. He departed from him until an opportune time. So he'll go through the temptation. We'll go through that temptation more next week. But, but we read that the devil tried all sorts of temptations. Every. And Jesus remained faithful to God. He just took it. Or he was just, whoo, 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 right? No, no uppercut. Right here. So in Genesis 3, we have the fall of man. In Luke chapter 4, we have the standing of man. 
capital M. We have, we have a new Adam. Right? It's Adam 2.0. Right? I, he's new and improved. So, in his obedience to God, even, even through the temptation, he's destined to reverse the fall. Right? Adam failing in obedience in, ch- in chapter 3 of Genesis. Jesus standing in obedience in chapter 4 of Luke. And so our sense of victory over evil, st- over that evil one, stems from Jesus standing, being a representative for us. And this is a preview of Jesus' victory over Satan in the death of, on the cross. In his resurrection three days later. This is a preview of Jesus' victory over Satan in his second coming. It's all a preview. Jesus standing up to Satan through all those temptations is the basis of all of our victories. Jesus enters battle with the enemy, and you notice how Jesus was on the offense. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Jesus was led by the Spirit. Jesus went on the attack. It wasn't self-defense. Right? He wasn't waiting for something. He, it was a spiritual offense, and I love that. I love that. Jesus fights for us. He's on the attack for us. He's on the offensive. He's taking initiative. He's not just waiting. Right? He, he takes initiative to engage in battle for us. He's engaging the enemy to fight for us. And in Jesus' obedience and victory and temptation, He, he secures our victory over the evil one. Right? Jesus, had, Jesus had some fight in Him. He fought for us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And He's not... Just guarding against evil. He is guarding us against the evil one. And behind that assurance, we have, we have this backdrop of Jesus already conquering Satan. That, that, that's how Jesus is able to establish us and guard us against the evil one. He's already won in the temptation, in His death on the cross, in His resurrection. He will also be victorious in His second coming. Jesus fights for us. He fights for you. He will establish you. He will guard you against the evil one. Now chapter 4, verses 1-13 through 13, shows us the assurance Jesus gives His people. And as I said earlier, we'll go into that more next week. We'll just talk about this generally. Verses 1 and 2 again here. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. From verses 1 and 2, know that the experience of temptation is not a sign of God's absence. When you experience temptation, it's not a sign of God's absence in your life. And you notice that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit while he was being tempted by the devil. He was full of the Holy Spirit. When, when we're tempted by the devil, just a mere attack of temptation on your life doesn't mean that God has left you. Right? You can still be full of the Holy Spirit even when you're tempted. Jesus was led by the Spirit and tempted by the devil. And you see that being full of the Spirit and being tempted by the devil, it can occur at the same time. You're not more holy if you have nothing going wrong in your life. 
That being led by the Spirit and being tempted by the devil can happen at the same time. It can happen simultaneously. Just know that so, so the next time something happens in your life and you have temptation, or you have something going on in your life right now and you have this temptation, you're wondering if God is still with you. You have these unhealthy thoughts about whether God is in your life because you have all this stuff going on, all these temptations and everything. It, he's not gone because you're tempted. He's in your life. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and He was tempted. And just because you're in a fight against these different temptations in your life, you're in a fight. It doesn't mean that you've lost. You're fighting. Fight. Right? You're, you're in it. You're in a fight, but it doesn't mean you've lost. Just because you're tempted by the devil, just because you have temptation in your life, doesn't mean God has left your side. You can be full of the Holy Spirit and tempted by the devil at the same time. And just know that when, when you think otherwise, when you have these thoughts of like, God left me? Is God not with me anymore? I'm going through all this stuff. He can't be. You know, if, if He was with me, none of this stuff would happen. Yes, it would. Yes, it will. Just be comforted to know that we have this sympathetic Savior. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, it was every temptation. It wasn't just those three. B.F. Westcott wrote in his book, The Epistle to the uh, Hebrews, he wrote this, Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. You understand that? Do you get the point of that? We don't need a Savior who has fallen to understand where we're coming from. We need one who has been victorious in all temptation. And he truly knows where we're coming from. Right? The one who knows the full intensity from start to finish. The complete difficulty from start to finish. The difficulty of that temptation is the one who endured it to the end and beat it. Not one who has fallen. Right? I hear this sometimes when, when people are, are talking. They're like, well, you know what? I, uh, he doesn't understand. I, I have this drug problem. He's never experienced drugs before because he's never, he's never fallen. He's, he's never been drunk out of his mind with a hangover. He doesn't understand. No, no. You don't understand. We don't understand. He went through it all to the very end. He has a full understanding, the full intensity. He didn't fall halfway. He experienced it all the way. So he knows exactly if you're in the fight and you leave before it's over, you don't know the intensity of the entire fight. You left. You fell. You didn't go through the entire five rounds. Right? It's the one who has fought until the end. Who knows the full intensity of temptation. Right? The one who endures the entire fight. Not the one who left the fight. So Jesus, in every respect, tempted as we are, 
Every temptation we experience yet without sin. Full intensity of it. And that tells us that he fully sympathizes. He can truly sympathize with every temptation. Now, did you know that in Oakland, um, we, we are one of four cities in Northern California who have been designated as a settlement city for refugees. The other ones are Sacramento, San Jose, and we're Oakland, and the fourth one is Turlock. I, I would think you'd just rather stay. Like, I don't know, Turlock. Maybe not. If you guys are from there, I apologize. Um, I don't mean to offend. Anyway, Oakland has 50 to 80 refugees coming in per month. Per month. Refugees from all over the world. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had a a tour of Kareni refugees. Kareni are a tribal group from Burma, and they are in in refugee camps in Thailand. And so they came visiting our church um, because they need help. They need help. You know that we're facing a crisis, a budget crisis in our country, but it's not just our country. It's also our state, and it's also our county. So in Alameda County, they have cut all of adult education, all of it, which means no ESL classes, which means these Kirini used to enroll in full-time ESL classes so that they can, in exchange, get food stamps. No food stamps. You don't qualify. No full-time ESL program. So along with these budget cuts in helping these refugees settle into the U.S., in the past, the U.S. would provide 36 months of aid to help them settle into the United States. They have cut it back to four months. Four months to figure out a new culture, to settle into a job, to find schools for your kids, to find a place to live, to figure out how the banking works, where where to shop for things, where to find social services, You used to live in the jungle. You have no idea what a city is. There are no paved roads out there. All in a foreign place where a few people speak your language because it's a tribal language. It's not like Chinese or Spanish where where you can kind of get along because a lot of people... It's Karini. It's not even Burmese. It's a small little language. How in the world are you going to make it in four months? My heart totally broke for them. I haven't had my heart broken like that in a long time. I just felt the pain inside my heart. And it might affect some people the same way. But to most of you, it doesn't. To most of you, it's like, oh, it's sad. But it doesn't penetrate. It doesn't hurt you inside, right? Why is it different for me? Why is that different for me? Because I've been there. I worked with the Korean refugees in 1995. I spent my whole winter there. I love those people. I spent time working with Burmese refugees. Not just the Kareni, but Karin. And and I made friends there. I grew to love them. I've been there. That made all the difference in here. If I I never was there, I, I, I wouldn't know. I would be like, oh, that's sad. I, I hope we can find a way to help them. I, I didn't know what to do. So I just prayed. And the very next day, there were these four Golden Gate seminarians, the same school that Mark goes to, and they came to talk to me. I didn't know what for. 
This was planned weeks before to have this meeting on, on this Sunday, and when I met the Karini on a Saturday, and they came and they talked to me, and I was thinking that they wanted to talk about, I don't know, how to plant a church or how to do urban ministry. I didn't know what they wanted to talk about. They came and they presented me how they want to serve refugees in Oakland. And they wanted to start by teaching English. I'm like, what in the world? I wanted to yell. God's awesome. He's like so fast, you know? Wow. It's like, now I just had that feeling for a lottery ticket. No, I'm kidding. But all, and and you know, within those four guys, they all had experience teaching English as a second language. Right? Most of them worked with refugees. Their heart broke for them. They, they, they sympathized. It went deep into them. They wanted to create a program where they could du- duplicate it in different churches so that they could serve refugees. They wanted to create, and they wanted to use Regen as this pilot program. They wanted to start it here. I, I was so excited. I was so thrilled. I, I, ah, I was so ah, Cool, right? But, but you see why they sympathized so much with refugees? They all taught English as a second language. Most of them worked with refugees. They had it. It was in there. That's kind of what hap- that's what that's what's happening here in Luke with Jesus. Right? We we need to realize as followers of Jesus that Jesus has been where you're at. He's been there. He's not just hearing it from afar. He's he's there. He was there. He was in that refugee camp. He's been there. Right? He, he's been tempted by every temptation. It wasn't just those three. Every. Right? And he's deeply moved. It pains his heart. Whatever you are going through, he knows. He understands. It's not foreign to him. We can't make that excuse like, oh, he, he doesn't understand. Yes, he does. He does. And some of you still might think, oh, he just doesn't know what I'm going through. Like, I, 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 I'm the exception because I have these different circumstances. I have this different family life and I'm in this different culture and, and I have all these different things. He knows. He went through every temptation. Every. He has full knowledge of what you're going through. And Jesus has a word for you. I've been there. Been where you're at. He's been where you're going to go. He's been there. No one will have as much sympathy toward you than Jesus Christ. He's been there. He stood in that water willingly. He hanged on that cross willingly. He was tempted in every respect willingly. He decided to go through those things. And Luke shows us Jesus and the beginning of his public ministry, but what does it start out with? It starts out with Jesus standing in our place to win our victory for us by his faithful and obedient life. He stands as a Savior who is sympathetic with our temptations. That's how it starts. To declare, I understand. I know what you're going through. So he, he, he has encountered, he has endured, he has conquered the evil one. That's how, it, that's how his public ministry starts. This declaration, I'm victorious, I totally understand what you're going through. I made it and I'm going to make a way for you. 
God the Father is absolutely delighted with Jesus, His Son. Totally thrilled at His Son. Standing, willingly standing for you and I. So where are we with our delight with Jesus? Who battles for us. Who fights for us. Let's pray. Jesus, you, your love for us, your sympathy, your understanding for us, is, it's just overwhelming. I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling, God. For those who are struggling to realize that you truly understand what they're going through. I pray, Lord, for healing in their life. I pray, Lord, that they would just feel your love and your care and your value for them. That you willingly stood in that baptismal bath. That you willingly hung on that wooden cross for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I'd like to invite you to pray this prayer with me so that you can begin this journey with Him. If the Holy Spirit is moving you in your heart and your mind, that you would join me in this prayer. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for your sympathy towards my temptation and the things I'm going through in my life. I pray that you would come into my life. That this would be the first step in my journey in relationship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.